Testing, testing. Like, like, like. Cool. Wait, can you do yours again? Because it was real quiet. Like, like, like. Like, right. like. Yep, you look good. You look good. I like good. <laughs> I actually think that me say, like doing a testing of saying like, 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 like actually helps me say it less. Welcome to VCR of Vintage Cinema Rewind. We're bringing old movies to new viewers. Should I have said that at the same time as you? Nah. No? Okay. <laughs> that would, that'd be weird. Would it? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe if we held hands, we could say at the same time. I'll Maybe just say next time. So before we get into this film, I want to get into some show notes from the last episode. Last time we watched E.T. on the podcast, during sequels, prequels, and reboots, I said that there was nothing out there. Turns out, in a way, that's untrue. In the late 80s, Mac and Me premiered, and that is essentially an almost plot-for-plot hacky reboot of E.T. It's actually a really funny reboot, um, especially because of Paul Rudd's running joke with Mac and me on Conan O'Brien. So if you haven't heard anything about Mac and me, go check out that Paul Rudd compilation. It's really funny. It is really funny. And that's the only reason why I actually found the film and why this film is still relevant today, essentially, because it's awful. I almost for a gag, almost watched it this weekend, but I ran out of time. So we didn't get that. (laughs) Yeah, if we had all the time in the world, that would be like a funny little thing to watch. But at the same time, I don't think I need to. Yeah, it wasn't worth my time. Before we get into this film, viewer discretion is advised. This film is highly sexualized. So, Mom, I know you've been enjoying the podcast. You can turn her off for this episode right now, and I'll see you in a few weeks. Also your aunt, right? Well, we don't have to go into that, but... <laughs> okay, now we have, we have to cut so much already. Yeah, that's fine. I, d- I spend my evenings cutting and pasting. <laughs> the show, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm like a six-year-old. <laughs> All right, let's get into the plot. So, introduction of the film. We watched this week Eyes Wide Shut... A 1999 film from Stanley Kubrick starring Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise. The film is pegged as an erotic thriller in which an affluent couple goes to a big party around the Christmas holidays. So during this party, each partner in the couple experiences a very flirtatious encounter with someone else at the party, while each of them is kind of watching the other have this experience. Yeah, but not in like a swinger way. No, it's just kind of natural to them, it seems, and um, you're not sure like what's going on yet with uh, their relationship. Like, is this part of it? Is it is it not part of their standard relationship? Yeah, you- and and also during it, you can kind of see each of them, just in their facial expressions, kind of observing it through different lens because both of them were having similar experiences just from a distance with the different perspective. Yes, and when uh, the couple goes home after the party they start to talk about what happened at the party nicole kidman she smokes up or smokes some weed 
and uh, gets a little silly, and she kind of goes into... Um, she basically contrasts the the encounter with Tom, with Bill, Tom Cruise's character's encounter, and both basically have a different perspective on the flirtatiousness of their experienceness and how the experiences between flirtation or just encounters really with the opposite sex impacts their marriage basically and bill the naive character here who just doesn't really consider his wife's perspective ever before this it send him sends him on a dark path in which the rest of this movie kind of shows him devolve into this night of debauchery essentially and then the ramifications of that night exactly that's the best way that we're going to describe this movie. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> this movie, before we get into who is this movie for, I just want to say that this is probably the one of the densest films I've ever seen. And basically, what my observations of this film changed, and my outlook of this film changed 40 minutes into this movie... Two hours into this movie, two hours after this movie was done, and now a half a week after watching this movie, my perspective has changed so much. Yeah, that happened to me as well. It's a very um, complex film where, on the surface, it isn't complex. Mm -hmm. So when you're going into this, as we did, we went into this movie blind, not knowing anything. And uh, so when you're... When I was watching this, I was I understood what the audience of the time kind of had where they had problems with it. But then after finishing, I just kept thinking about all the small details, and that kind of revealed a um, a whole framework of genius that Stanley Kubrick, the director, was able to uh, piece together. See, I wrote this down that this film makes me feel like Charlie Day in the uh, meme where yeah. he's like like pointing at the wall like a crazy person. Yeah. That's what I felt like by the end of last night and researching all of everything. I had to actually put my notes down. I've written six pages of notes here and I had to put things down and walk away from this film or else I would have spent another 40 hours researching this probably. You could do your PhD on this film, I think, if you're in film school. Yeah, like many people have um, stated that this film could, you could write a book on it because there's so much going on and it's so oblivious to the, like the, the audience that may have went to see this movie. So when you're watching this, you have to try to get into this mind frame of appreciating the small details it's not fully about the bigger picture but the all the details bring out this huge picture it's not a surface movie and i think that's a great segue into who is this movie for i have a lot of notes here i actually am really interested in hearing kind of what your thoughts are before i get into mine yeah i would say this is really a movie for someone who has already taken the journey of enjoying movies and enjoying older movies so this might be the the more advanced of each of the movies we've done so far and it might be like the most advanced for a while we both went into this blind not knowing much at all 
besides the fact that it was a great old movie. Basically, my only the only thing that I knew going to this movie was that Stanley Kubrick, the legendary director, directed this and this was his last film and that Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman starred in it and there was some sort of sexual content involved in it and that was it. I think this film is for people who consider themselves students of film and culture that and this film is so deep that one after you finish watching it you're going to spend hours discussing it with the person you watched it with researching after we're pulling meaning out of this film for yourself and then finding it online on other discussions and and comparing and contrasting that to your own ideas and thoughts and conclusions. Yeah, like within my research after the movie, I found that some people hadn't even seen certain aspects that I saw. And um, they, like so many were revealed as well that I hadn't seen. So it was, um, it's, yeah, very much for someone who's into like film as much as we are really. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're a fan of Stanley Kubrick, you need to watch this movie. Partially because it's his last film as well, and there's something special in that last film that a great Hollywood director makes before he passes. But uh, I, I almost want to contrast that a little bit, though. In my opinion, if you've never seen a Stanley Kubrick film before, I don't think you should start with this film as his first movie. I agree. It basically yeah. he's regarded as one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. He and that's at a director, a producer, and a writer standpoint because he often did all three and had kind of his hands in every other component of the films he was making. For for me personally, this doesn't fit into the my top three favorite Stanley Kubrick movies. Um, and and part of that is is just because of accessibility a little bit. I think if you want to uh, get into Stanley Kubrick's movies and get into a dense film, you want to start with something more like 2001 A Space Odyssey or Full Metal Jacket or even The Shining are really great entries into Stanley Kubrick's universe. Definitely. The sexuality in this film was kind of... they actually did kind of like an ad campaign around it. Mm-hmm. And once you watch it and you start to break down all the themes and ideas, you kind of understand why they uh, set it up in their campaign to be so sexual, like a sexual thriller. Mm-hmm. Because in the very first scene, you see Nicole Kidman slipping off her like her dress and that's how the just, movie starts yeah the, the the very first scene is a naked nicole kidman yeah who is at her prime of mm-hmm. like her and tom cruise are like the couple of hollywood at this point yeah and i really want to dive into that into the characters and people you may know but as well this if you're a fan of tom cruise This is kind of an interesting film because this is kind of outside of the normal Tom Cruise film of the 2000s 
Because if if you're kind of paying attention to him in the last 20 years, he's doing a lot of action and thrillers and films like that. Whereas this film is is a more dramatic role for him. And pre-2000s, Tom Cruise did have a lot more dramatic roles. So this is kind of a crossroads for him, in my opinion. Yeah, like he he explored a, a really cool aspect of his career within this film. Something that I just want to add on to that uh, Nicole Kidman, mm-hmm. like, naked scene. Basically, like, the whole ad campaign was how sexual this was going to be. And then as soon as you, like, as soon as it starts, you see her naked. And it's almost like Kubrick was saying, like, there, you got your naked star. Yes. Now pay attention to this movie. Yes. And I I actually want to dive into that a little bit later in effects and filming. But what's really interesting about this film is that different sources label this movie as a different genre. So Wikipedia labels this as an erotic mystery psychological drama, whereas IMDb labels this as a thriller psychological drama and in my opinion most of that does fit this film although i don't necessarily agree with the mystery component there are mystery elements in this film but it and not in the traditional sense necessarily yeah it kind of flits in between all these definitions like it's mm-hmm. created its own little pocket in between all of them yes what i would say and is a um, direct correlation to like one of the themes in this movie is that psychological is wrong. It should be sociological. Oh, according to this movie, like yes, psychological is what everybody starts off the movie thinking. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you break it down, it's not about the psychology. It's not about the psychology of like one person or characters. of the characters. Yes. It's a it's a message about. So, like the society that they live in. Yes, this is absolutely absolutely a social commentary film and not necessarily about what you think and especially if you've watched the trailer, not what you think. I also want to just say as well, you know, we we had the kind of uh, viewer discretion at the beginning as well. If you had an issue getting through some of the sexual scenes in like a Game of Thrones, something a little bit more recent, then this film probably isn't for you as well. Because even though the the erotic part of this film is, is really in the first 40 minutes, there are some pretty graphic moments later on as well. Yeah, they aren't as intense as more modern things. I think they were very intense for their time. This movie was ahead of its, ahead of its time in that sense. Yeah, and it makes so much sense for why he created it when he did. That it really said something. Um, all of that nudity and um, debauchery. But the nudity isn't super graphic. It's full nudity. Yes, and there is sex involved, but it's not, like, hardcore. Yeah, some of the later scenes can be a little bit more intense. And so if you are if you really don't like nudity in your films, then, like I said, this film isn't for you. But you kind of have to be open to the experience a little bit there. And if nudity is really your thing, <laughs> this also 
might not be really your thing because it there is some great nudity, but it's also like tinged with a little bit of like something wrong. Yes, it. This movie is deeply unsettling. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so let's talk when to watch here. Um, like I said before, this should not be your first Stanley Kubrick film. Also, don't watch this with your parents, or as a parent, don't watch this with your kids. Yep. I would say also, don't watch this with your partner if you're somewhat new in the relationship. Yeah, that's a great point. Don't bring this to, like, one of your first three dates. (laughs) No, definitely not. You're not getting called back. Netflix and chill on something else. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) You also are going to need almost three hours to watch this film, And you do need to be aware that the first 40 minutes are very plodding and and really take a while to get going. And that's going to turn some viewers off. You you need those three hours and you have to be open to be fully into this experience. Yeah. And also you have to be able to have the outlook of paying attention to detail. So don't get too high or drunk while watching this, maybe. Or you could and you'll really (laughs) notice some things. I don't know. This film is not a film that you turn your brain off of for. You will not have a good time. No, you'll fall asleep. Yeah, absolutely. But when you're, oh, I, I, can't, I actually really want, like, this is one that I really want to rewatch because yes. the feeling after watching this movie and thinking about it, I really, it makes me want to rewatch it. 40 minutes in, I was like, I'm probably never watching this again. Yeah. Two hours. Two hours later, I finished the film, and I was like, hmm. And now, I, I, I can't get this movie out of my brain. It's like when you get a song stuck in your head, and it plays over and over and over again, and you almost have to listen to it again to stop the repeat, the loop going on. Yeah, or in a very similar sense, when you're listening to a song, like a really good song you just heard, and you have to, it takes a while to learn the lyrics. Yes. You're, it's like you're trying to really learn the lyrics because you want to know this song. You want to know each word, but each word is like, it's hard to grasp. Yes, I so, very much agree. That's a great analogy. So question for you. Do you think this is a Christmas movie? There's a lot of Christmas imagery in this film. That is a super interesting symbolic element of the yes. film. but. It's not a Christmas movie. Okay, this isn't a Die Hard. <laughs> no, definitely not. It's not really pegged to a specific time of the year or anything. Besides, no, like, like it is, it is it around is Christmas. It is during Christmas time, and but it doesn't have that feeling. <laughs> no, it doesn't have that film feeling. Whereas I will still argue to this day that Die Hard is a Christmas movie, and I pretty much watch it every year in December. I could agree. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I would say is. If you could watch this with a friend or at the same time as another friend who is also into the movies or into movies in general, you'll have a better time because you can dissect it and have that have the discourse that this that Eyes Wide Shut really deserves. Yes, absolutely. I've been pumped all weekend to discuss this movie with you. And the more time went on, the more pumped I got to discuss it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. All right, so where you can stream this movie, you can currently stream this film on Netflix. And again, link in the description below if you're watching 
the episode a little bit later, you should be able to find Eyes Wide Shut on a number of streaming services for rent or maybe somewhere else streaming for free at this point in time. And you can check out where it is on Just Watch. Just Watch, yes. It's also in the link in the description below. So next, we're going to hop into characters and people you may know. So let's start with our main cast and characters. We've got Tom Cruise, who's playing Dr. Bill Hartford. So obviously, everybody knows who Tom Cruise is. He's now mainly in action thrillers, but this was kind of in that time where he was playing more dramatic type of roles. Like the you can't handle the truth. Yeah. What was that again? Wasn't that Jack Nicholson? Yeah, he said it, but it was uh, they were like speaking to each other in that scene. A few good men. Yeah, yeah. Was that Tom Cruise? Yes, it was. Whoa, it was. Yeah, so I. Huh. There's there's so many ways we could go with this podcast. I'd love to do that one. Yeah, I'd like to do that at some point too. I've never seen that either. Me either. Yeah. Cool. It's just like so referenced. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't need to go into Tom Cruise any more than that, really. You besides, know Tom Cruise. Besides his character. Yes. Let's go into his character a little bit here. His name, Dr. Bill, is very essential to his character because if you think about it, Dr. Bill kind of sounds like Dollar Bill. Interesting. And throughout the movie, his character is using his money to wave influence over the people below him interesting yeah like you really went down the charlie day crazy yeah yeah (laughs) so like each each character had like their naming is very important to the whole story there are some allegories that i want to get into with a couple of the other characters um bill hartford the part that i wanted to bring up is the last name hartford did you read about the significance of that yes i did yeah so Stanley Kubrick based the character Bill Hartford off of Harrison Ford and basically paid tribute in his last name as Hart Ford, Harrison yeah, Ford, yeah. Hart Ford. <clears throat> yeah, because he wanted that kind of um, gravitas, I guess, to be yes. essential to the character. A yeah. little bit. like There's hints of it, I guess. Yeah, there's a little bit of that there. I don't think Tom Cruise could pull off the... Harrison Ford kind of uh, swagger or swagger. suave. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think he can pull it off quite, but he he's still. This is a great performance. See, Har- Harrison Ford is too smooth. So then, opposite Tom Cruise, we have Nicole Kidman playing Alice Hartford, his wife. So Nicole Kidman, you may know from Aquaman, Moulin Rouge, The Others, and Dogville. She was actually kind of more famous, I would say, in the early 2000s than in the last 10 years, really. But she does have some bigger roles in the last 10 years as well. She's been hitting some absolutely amazing roles recently. Really? Yeah, I'll have to pull up a little bit, but Annabelle is in love with her and so we've watched like every newer movie of hers oh wow. and like some of them are transformative like they're like as uh, her as an actress like they're very interesting she's been choosing some very cool roles lately and that's the thing about movies is that there's just so many interesting actors doing interesting things out there this is probably the first movie i've ever watched with nicole kidman in it and it sounds like you and your partner have a lot more history with Nicole Kidman than I do. Yeah, like her more modern things have a lot of playtime in our household. And she's 
Annabelle has loved her for like all her roles basically. So I think she she would be perfect to have on right now to speak about Nicole Kidman. But her her character his name is her name is Alice. And that is in reference to Alice in Wonderland. Absolutely. There's no way it isn't. I didn't find anyone discussing that, but there's no way that it wasn't a uh Alice in Wonderland reference. Yeah, so she is dreaming. She's like a a pretty girl who's focused on her looks and that she feels that's like part of, like the major part of her value as a person. And so you you often see her combing her hair and looking in mirrors and that is a very important part as we'll we'll di- dissect it a little more later, and that's also what Bill wants from his wife as well, right? In the direction that his career and his life is heading in, he just wants a trophy wife, essentially. I think that's what he kind of always wanted, but now he's starting to re- like he's starting to realize there is more to that, but he doesn't realize that until later in the movie, right? So. This is where the sociological impact of Kubrick's writing in this is essential because the way he views his wife is so important to everything that's going on and how he views himself. Another, she probably won't get brought up, but they have a daughter, right? Right. Her name is Helen. Okay. Sorry, it's it might actually be Helena. Either way, it's in reference to Helen of Troy. Because they are so superficial in the beginning mm-hmm. that like everything is at face value for them. Or everything's yes. at face value or a face value version of a mask. Yes. So what they both feel is that Alice, the mom, is this beautiful woman. Mm-hmm. And that's her prime value to the world. Yes. And so they want to pass that on to their daughter. What way better than naming her after Helen of Troy? Interesting. Man, we went to crazy town on this one for sure. Because I have way different things than you have to talk about in this movie. So let's get into a few more characters. Those are really the two main characters to know for this film. And kind of the opposites that are, are set up against each other. The other people that you may know, so Vanessa Shaw, who plays Domino, the prostitute, she's in 310 to Yuma and The Hills Have Eyes in the 2000s, and that was kind of her peak. She really hasn't done a whole lot of exciting things since then. Uh, She was also in Hocus Pocus, though, as Allison. Oh, no way. Yeah. Really? Oh, I love Hocus Pocus. Yeah. And I love her character in that. Yeah. Yeah, She did a really good job. Yeah, wow. The other cast, we have... Alan Cumming, who was the hotel clerk, he had such a recognizable face. I don't know if he did for yep. you, but for me, he plays Nightcrawler in X-Men 2. The original wow. X-Men 2. Okay, yeah, I see that. I, yeah. I can remember him in that because he is a very recognizable face within that time of movies. Yeah, exactly. He's in a bunch of other notable dramas, but the only other film that I would say that has more, maybe more widespread appeal is Burlesque he was in as well. Okay. One other character here that I want to bring up quick, Thomas Gibson. Oh, he's the husband of the grieving women, or sorry, grieving woman whose father just passed away. 
And this scene I almost forgot about, to be honest, because there's so many notable scenes in this film. But he plays Aaron Hotchner on Criminal Minds. He's in, like, 20 seasons of Criminal Minds, which is kind of wild. Wow, okay. Yeah, I wouldn't have caught that caught on to that at all. Yeah, quick two other notes. I did find that there were a lot of small actors who were also in Snatch. And that's because this film was filmed quite significantly in England. So there's a lot of English actors there that kind of have that connection to Snatch, which is really interesting. There's also Faye Masterson, and I, I looked really hard for this, actually. Faye Masterson plays the friend of the prostitute that Bill talks to later on in the movie. She plays Mrs. Jones in the Fifty Shades movies. I really... Wow. Uh, there, so, this is an erotic film, or that's how it was framed. So, I was like, there has to be some sort of crossover with Fifty Shades of Grey, and I found it. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> one, there's two more characters that... One more character that's very important to the story. Yes. The character's name is Victor Ziegler. Yes, Ziegler. Who, yeah, who is... It's it's like Bill's mentor essentially in he, in kind of that affluent New York life. Basically, he's he he's what Bill aspires to be, I think. Yes. Uh, and so Victor Ziegler is Bill Hartford's kind of boss as well because he kind of comes in mm-hmm. for any medical needs that Ziegler has right. and that's why he's invited to this massive party so we're introduced to Victor in the beginning he holds the first party yes. where everything throughout the rest of the movie is kind of um alluding to like they're connected there's a lot of connections there's there. a lot of connections and another thing on his name mm-hmm. Victor he's the winner so oh, you can't say any more than that though no that's, that's yeah, almost yeah. too much. Yeah, yeah. So everybody's name <laughs> oh, means something. Man. Another character, Nick Nightingale. Nick Nightingale. is He's the friend of Bill who becomes a musician instead of going the route of going through his doctorate, basically. Yeah, and so he becomes a musician and a nightingale bird mm-hmm. sings in the night. There, that's what a nightingale oh, yeah so that's another cool little reference so every and this is this is i'm glad we got to this section fairly early in our discussion because this is where you can kind of see where every little detail matters to this film so as you're watching eyes wide shut details matter and that's kind of quintessential to stanley kubrick's films is that there's so much deep meaning and what i absolutely love about stanley kubrick is he firmly believed as a director that he shouldn't provide answers to all of the questions of the film that you should derive your own meaning from his films and he's never ever really broken down any of his films before his passing so a lot of like the stuff that you and i are discussing are our own thoughts and opinions on the film or larger more interesting voices online thoughts on the film i actually even have a couple articles that i want to quickly bring up if if other people want some future reading as well at the end yeah, of this podcast i definitely have some as well so I think that's basically it for like the very notable characters. But my favorite character, Millich, is one that I want to talk about. He's just so fun. He is so fun. That's the that's the guy who runs the costume store, the clothing store, right? Yeah. That scene was so great. And this is, uh, you know what? I'm gonna get to this later. I'm not. I don't want to dive into what I'm about to talk about. 
I want to say that I've seen him in something else, and it it looks like he has quite a history, but a lot of it is Serbian, I believe. Yes. Snatch. Who was he? This is what I mean. There were so many characters that also had roles in Snatch. Who was he? I can't. I'm not gonna remember. He was Boris the Blade. Ah. The guy. Who, yeah. The the guy that Tony was shooting at and everything. He was. He uh, had the glass of milk or something, and he <laughs> yeah. like got hit in the car. Yeah. Boris the Blade, and that's that's where I recognize him. Right. That actually makes a ton of sense. That was the Snatch connection. There was like three or four actors. Mm. All right, should we get into themes now? Yeah, definitely. So so part of the theme segment here, we're going to do our best to talk about some themes and go into a little bit of detail, but we want to save a lot of the discussion for this film into the this spoiler section of this podcast just because you really have to experience the last two hours for yourself before we talk to you about a lot of it, really. If you get into the movie the way that we kind of are hoping you will, especially based on listening to us talk about like paying attention and getting into the movie's details then you'll have a lot to discuss after or think about after, and you'll be able to hear all of our thoughts on it. We'll break down some of the um, symbolism and everything even further in the spoiler section. Yes. I think we have to start with sex and marriage as the first theme here. It's the first theme that really hits you over the head. It's what the moviegoers at the time would have expected going into this film based on the trailer. And essentially, it's kind of the two different perspectives that male and females that Alice and Bill bring to the relationship. Yeah, and a lot of it, again, is sociological. Yes. So we are looking a little bit at their own perspectives, but it's it's very true to the larger society that is being looked at throughout this. Yeah, and honestly, when I started this film and when it got to the scene when Bill and Alice are having that back and forth about what the relationship means to them and jealousy and flirting and all of that, I actually wrote down like, is this a little outdated maybe at this point in time? And part of the reason for that is if you dig into it is that Eyes Wide Shut is based on a novel from 1926 called Trom Novel. Trom Novel, which is French for dream story. I thought that Originally, when we had first kind of hit that point, when they have these differing perspectives, that that they felt a little outdated. But as the film kind of progresses, I kind of changed my mind, and and after kind of viewing and doing my research, I I really can see the lines and how the sociological aspect of this basically does kind of still permeate our society in a way oh definitely especially because if you think about what the characters are experiencing it's a lot about fitting a role the way she describes her dream to bill and the way he reacts Mm -hmm. they're both kind of fitting a role in the sense that she thinks that so bill and this is comes to a little bit a little bit later i want to talk about naivety and bill but bill feels like a very naive character in the beginning 
And the way he sees his flirting and also his career, because I don't know what kind of doctor he is exactly, but he works a lot with women um, and a lot on their breasts. So (laughs) he he touches a lot of women. That is referenced, yes. Yes, and, and that's not only is it shown visually, but it's again brought up by Alice, who says... You know, I see you flirting with these other women, and I know what you're doing at work, basically, and I know what those women are thinking about you, and they want to basically jump your bones, essentially. And and that's also something that you see throughout the film. Like, I actually wrote at some point that just about everybody in this film, in one way or another, is trying to sleep with Bill at some point. Yeah, and he's just trying to sleep with someone. <laughs> and but but before I think before the point of this part in their relationship, he he's the kind of guy who has that naivety of you know it's okay if I flirt a little bit with these girls if I maybe flirt and have a little fun at work kind of thing because you know no, nobody's hurt by this like I'm not I'm not pushing the envelope on our relationship at all and i feel like bill's the kind of guy where if things accidentally went further he'd go you know you know i i wasn't the one who initiated it Mm. like i didn't want it it just kind of happened it's like the natural state of a man in power that as he sees it and as society kind of sees it where you could just if you have enough money and um charisma you can kind of get away with things yes and he's naive in the sense that alice flips that and says you know i as a woman am also very sexual and that just blows his mind he's like no like you're you're a loyal wife yes you stay at home and you take care of our daughter because she isn't working currently she used to be an art uh art she ran an art gallery where she would be selling art right he views her as this perfect kind of stay-at-home model, like, trophy wife. Right. And doesn't imagine... He hasn't... He can't fathom the fact that she would have any fantasies about other men than him. Even though he, you know, has this little flirty side and he has that kind of banter with the women at mm-hmm. work and everything. He can't fathom that his own wife may also have similar feelings. And when she tells him that... she. For a moment, she was ready to leave him for some sailor that she saw walking by them, kind of. Yeah, thing. yeah. So she goes into her story about a guy that she saw and the the way she thought and how she almost acted upon it. And it just kind of broke his brain. And yes. that's where everything starts to devolve for him because his naivety has just been shattered. Yes. And that's where the film kind of flips the switch. Basically that's kind of the end of act one. And we're not really going to discuss act two and act three until the spoiler section of this film, because the first 40 minutes of this film really build going towards one way that kind of what they showed you and what Stanley Kubrick, like you said, beautifully earlier presented that nudity and said, here you go. Yeah. Here's, here's the gratuitous nudity that you've come to expect. Now let's dive into the movie. Yeah. And so 
I actually wrote somewhere in the middle of Act 2 and Act 3, if this movie was made again and they cut down Act 1 significantly or cut it out entirely, would this movie still work? By the time I finished the film, said no. The first part of the movie is very important to everything that happened next. Yeah, like the positioning that they all do, everybody that you see is just positioning for this kind of power in a sexy, suave, high-life society. And the masks that they put on to participate in that society and in their in their respective positions of that society. Right. It's very essential to the rest of the movie because it all breaks down. Yes. And so the next biggest theme that I want to just quickly mention now and then we'll dive it into it in spoilers is the social commentary on power and the consequences that come with power. And not also the necessary, the consequences that come with it, but the lack of consequences that comes with having power. There's, and there's two levels of power that are explored here Mm -hmm. and from different perspectives. And within that as well, there is also a sociological element of the way the, the power is represented so when you're watching this you kind of feel like you might just be getting hit over the head with this social commentary like oh rich people are bad Mm -hmm. but it goes so much farther than that don't fall into the trap that you're just watching like a like a a a teen who wrote like oh rich people are bad it's so much more than that and you kind of realize that the farther you get into it yes All right. Do you want to talk Christmas as a theme next? There's like themes that you should watch out for that we can't go into too far. And I think the Christmas as a theme, I could go too far into it. Okay, fair enough. I will just bring up that this film takes place around Christmas. And so in almost every single scene, there's a Christmas tree as well as Christmas lights, which helped with the effects in the filming a little bit Mm -hmm. and it almost puts you in like a dreamlike state while watching this this film it looks visually different from most other films you would see mostly because of the lighting and and the kind of the imagery of the dreams and that kind of state that it wants to put your mind in yes and like all of the christmas lights that you see are kind of hazy and Mm dreamlike and they're also they tie into the rainbow theme as well. So I didn't even notice the rainbow theme. Yeah, so they, they actually tie together because all of the Christmas lights are multicolored. Right. None of them are like standard white or anything like that. Not that that's... It, it's only in reference to the rainbow aspect, mm-hmm. which in the very first scene is referenced by the two models that are hitting on Bill. One of them is like, why don't you come with us? And he's like, well, where are we going? And the other says, we're going over the rainbow or to where the rainbow ends. And then there's all these rainbow colors throughout and they're tied to the Christmas trees as well. You don't see any of the dreamlike stuff in certain scenes. Watch out for those scenes. That's all I could say at this point of the podcast interesting yeah i don't think we can go any further than that honestly this film has so many themes that you can derive yourself that that really that you could write an entire novel length and there have been entire novel length articles written about it 
So the last kind of point that I personally want to discuss here on themes is that the film really feels like a chasm of ideas. At first, it kind of looks like a small hole and you don't really know how deep things go. And as well, Kubrick didn't really share much insight on this film before he passed. And generally, that wasn't his way as well, like I said before. So he kind of pushed moviegoers to come to their own conclusions. And I don't think that the average moviegoer is really interested in that. But if if that, at this point in our podcast, you should know if this is a film for you or not, I think. Yeah, yeah. And I think also hearing a bit about it, you might give it a, a, a watch in a new light. And that's kind of what we're trying to do for all of all of the movies. So I'm glad that this one got so deep into it. So it shows kind of how far you can go into movies like that. Many people don't really see that as an option. They finish a movie and they're like, hmm, like, okay, I I got some stuff from it. But we're trying to open up, up new viewers to some of the different things that you can enjoy from watching an old film like this yeah driving home tonight actually i i came to the conclusion that this film is a work of art in the sense that the artist kubrick basically painted this portrait and didn't leave a whole lot of dialogue about what the portrait meant and so a lot of people are going to look at the portrait and go nah it's art i don't really care like Mm. there there isn't really anything more than the face value of what this is and there's other people that are going to look at it and go oh my god this makes me think of this and that and i'm inspired by this component and that component and everybody's going to take something a little bit different from that art and that's what the artist intended the artist wasn't trying to tell you a story the artist was trying to make you feel something and even like reach you on a personal level that's going to be different from the next person to walk up and view that piece of art yeah and he was really aiming it at people who will take that time and effort to allow the feelings to come up in themselves while they watch it because this is his culminating piece like yes this is his Maybe not Mona Lisa or like the Sistine Chapel or something like that, but it's very close to that. His other films aren't as, maybe not as deep and full. They're very deep. They're all very deep films. I know. But this is the one that I think you and I could spend the longest discussing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The last kind of point that I want to make and this is maybe the reason that this film has captured my intention uh, my attention so long after watching it and why I've written six pages of notes for this this film has so many ideas and layers so that you could spend just as long or longer going down the rabbit hole of this film as you like I was reading about Kubrick's career and his artistic direction and and all of this is so extremely well documented because of the impact that he had on not only the people watching these films but on the actors on the writers the producers of all of his films and all the future directors and actors that came from this I guarantee if you look at any great filmmaker in the last 20 years and you say who's one of your inspirations in their top three they're naming Stanley Kubrick definitely yeah there's no there's no one else there yeah the top three 
he's up there for all of them. Yeah, exactly. And he just pulls so many genres, in, and not only all of his films, but each individual film is so starkly different from the film that came before it. Like, he pretty much had hit every major genre that he could hit between all of his films. And this is actually, I wasn't even going to bring this up, but I want to now. He basically, a lot of his films were based on novels or novellas. And the reason for that is he wanted to find a piece of art that in his mind wasn't perfect and make it so. And Mm. kind of like find where the pieces that he could push and pull Mm. and kind of make it his and make it artistically beautiful, essentially. And that's something that on the last podcast you and I talked about with Annihilation. The novel is is kind of wasn't for me to be honest, but the movie is so starkly different from it and the director took the ideas and pulled and twisted and mm-hmm. turned them into something that's so memorable that I honestly think that that film is probably in my top 20 films of all time. It's it's a later in that list but it's still in there i think when you're looking at how kubrick took the certain scenes from his novels and used them or changed them there's a big difference it's how you said like he took a piece of art that wasn't absolutely perfect and like tried to do it justice he still kept some scenes from Trom Novel almost word for word the same in the movie right. as is was the book because I think he felt it did embody that perf- perfection and then he just added and um, extrapolated a beyond to create this new story or a better version of the original. Right. I think it's a good point here to kind of pivot into effects and filming a little bit because I think that's more what we're talking about anyway and we'll do score after. So like we said, this is based on the novella Dream Story and Kubrick actually had the original idea back in 1968 to adapt this novella and he actually wanted to make it a sex comedy back then. Wow. Yeah, but I think I think over time... It was almost 30 years before he started thinking about that again and how to kind of develop or adapt this novella. And I think he matured as a director over that time and his perspective of the story he wanted to tell changed. Yeah, that makes sense. Another, like, setting and location is pretty big in this. Yes. It is set in New York, but... A lot of it was filmed in England. So there's a couple of reasons for that as well. So the first reason is Kubrick was deathly afraid of flying. And so he never left England, essentially. So as as a director of that size, he could pull the weight to say, I'm not going anywhere. You guys are coming to me. Yeah. Yeah. That was just so great about him just like being like that. Yeah. It's pretty funny. And the other part to why he did that was it again it kind of adds to the dreamlike state of the film because oftentimes when you're looking at bill in walking the streets of new york at night if the uh, camera is looking at him and behind him the backdrop was fake often it was a film like they they spliced in 
the scene from New York. Yes. They filmed that separately and then put him behind, or in front of it. It was like old school movies where they basically, yeah, just had like those frames that would mm. kind of go by. And like often when he was walking, instead of actually walking, he was on like a, a conveyor belt kind of thing. Like, oh, I didn't see that. That's cool. Yeah. There's so many little details. Man. Yeah. And some of the locations are real, like... I can't get too far into it, but one of them is an actual Rothschild house. Right. Yeah. And a a so, mansion, essentially. Yeah. So this big mansion where the elite that are, is referenced to throughout the film, mm. they live there. And mm. if you look at it, Rothschild is kind of is a German Jewish origin name. And so is Victor Ziegler. It was kind of, they did a lot of parallels. Right. So Stanley Kubrick finished editing this film and had shown it to the studio and actors and passed away about four to six days later, depending on who he showed it to, before the score and a lot of other pieces were complete at that point in time. And that's really important because Stanley Kubrick is a perfectionist and he, like I said before, has his hands in every aspect of all of his films. And so while he may have had some input into some of the score and some of the music components and some of the other kind of components to the film... There are things that are missed, basically, because he wasn't around to finalize it. The cut from start to finish about kind of the flow of the action was the same as when he's passed away. It's just all of the added stuff, basically. Okay. And this was, at this point, it took the longest to film this movie than any other movie previously. It has a world record yeah. for longest filming. Is that still active? Like an active world record? As far as I know, yes. It took 15 months to film, and it was 46 weeks of straight shooting, uninterrupted. Wow. Yeah, like, that was unprecedented, and still, apparently, nobody's needed that much time. And that's where... You can kind of see the contrast of like his perfectionism and all the little details. He reshot and reshot certain things over and over again. Yeah, so that's actually something that I knew going into this film was the length of shooting. And so observing the film, that was a thought that I had. I thought, how could this film possibly take that long? But Stanley Kubrick, being a perfectionist, would take those multiple shots, like you said. He, at one point, took 95 shots to get Tom Cruise walking through a door. And then at one point, when Tom Cruise was really dejected by all of this, Kubrick said to him, Tom, you stay with me and I'm going to make you a star. (laughs) (laughs) Classic. That's unreal. Yeah, so the other kind of thing that's important with this film to remember with the actors is that actually Cruz and Kidman were married at this point in time. Mm -hmm. And so Kubrick had a way about filming where he would essentially force method acting onto his characters. And you'll see that in a lot of his films. And honestly, he he often treats his actors a little like shit. Yeah. And, he, and he tries to target their fears and their deepest fears. And so he often had Cruz and Kidman kind of almost pitted against each other a little bit mm-hmm. throughout this film. Like, for example, during the fantasy sex sequences with nicole kidman she filmed those over six days and that was only one minute scene cumulative throughout the film filmed over six days and tom cruise was banned from the shoot during those six days 
and Nicole Kidman was forbidden from discussing anything that had happened on set to him throughout the movie, basically. So really driving that little bit of a wedge in there. Yes, so they drew that wedge into it, and there's also some real-world kind of aspect that come into that because this film comes out in 99, and Kidman and Cruz actually divorced by 2001. So what's really interesting about this film as well is that Cruz and Kubrick met and kind of talked for a while before Kubrick handed Cruz the movie. And that at that point in time, Cruz said, hey, I'd love to have my wife as my opposite on this film with me. And what I really find interesting about that is I think that kind of almost plays to the naivety of Bill Mm -hmm. and Tom and having kind of that similarity where i don't think that tom expected this film to have such an impact on their lives and and what kubrick would do and push them to do for this film and it's also crazy because of what we know tom to be now Mm-hmm. which I don't know if that was being discussed back then, no. was how far into... Scientology. Yes. Like, how public was that knowledge back then? And did Kubrick know? I feel like he yes, must he have. Yes, he did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because, and Tom has been in a few movies that are along the same lines, where he's talking about things, but he's also living those things. Yes, Something's off there, and I oh I don't know when to bring this up, but American Psycho, Christian Bale bases character off of Tom Cruise. Yes, with the crazy eyes. Yeah, so he he actually specifically said that the way Christian Bale based his character in American Psycho off of Tom Cruise, what he said about Tom Cruise is that he had this very intense friendliness with nothing behind the eyes. And yes. that is very much in line with what was Eyes Wide Shut was 1999 and American Psycho was 2000. Yeah, not like long after. They might have been, well, yeah, they would have been filmed at different times, of course, than their release dates. But the idea that Tom Cruise is in soci- or Scientology and also part of this film and Christian Bale identified that kind of craziness that is very active in this movie. I would say yeah, it's pretty crazy. Kubrick just has a way of identifying what makes an actor tick and can play that off really well to push the emotions that he wants essentially. Yeah. And that's where I think a lot of ego is discussed in this film as well. And It was almost the way he plays ego off is kind of like he's getting Tom Cruise to almost play himself in this. Yes. And Tom Cruise is so willing to do it because either he's a great artist or he is super egotistical and he's playing himself just in a different light. It's just an interesting little thing that Kubrick was playing with and Kubrick was constantly deprecating Cruz in this film like they make fun of Cruz's height in this film they make fun of his naivety in this film they make fun of his beliefs in this film he's he's constantly being pushed in places where it kind of reflects that real life Tom Cruise yeah yeah 
All right, so let's talk score. So like I said, this uh, film wasn't finished before Kubrick passed away and the score was fully kind of added to the film. Something of note is that Kubrick often uses ironic music to frame his scenes. So if a movie like this isn't necessarily your flavor, let's talk like Full Metal Jacket. The end of Full Metal Jacket, while this horror and the war is going on, all of the soldiers are singing the Mickey Mouse theme song kind of thing. So he often frames things to make it ironic to what's happening. So the opening scenes of this film, when they're basically at the party and they're flirting with the other guests at the party they played it had to be you and when i fall in love and they constantly like keep upping and upping the music Mm. and kind of pushing pushing it at you as like things are kind of devolving more into like flirtatious and maybe pushing beyond that a little bit okay i see what you're saying they i can i had that feeling i think but it was just like everything was adding into it but i could see how like the the score really does set a lot of the mood and then all the other small details come in to add so much to it. Yeah. Next time you watch it, pay attention to that opening scene because it does it really well. And I actually think that Kubrick probably had that in place when he had passed away. And I think some of the other music, like I actually didn't love the piano as much as you did. And I think part of it was is because it played too much to what was going on. And I think at this point, I'm a little bit more used to Kubrick's way of of scoring his films. Mm. So it felt a little bit more jarring to me where I was more at home with it had to be you and when I fall in love. Hmm. So, yeah, that piano that was playing throughout the later two thirds of the movie the very specific ominous one it was jarring and everything that he was experiencing was slightly jarring because he was going out of this perfect world that he had previously everything played its part and the score definitely impacted all that yeah i don't have too much more to add to score honestly there's entire articles written online about the layers of the music choices alone in this film so if if something if this is something you want to dive in a little bit more, I absolutely recommend you go online and research some of that. Yeah, I've got something in my notes here on that spe- the specific songs that were played, the classical songs, and how they're relevant. But there's so many details that it's definitely worth a look up if you're into that side of film. I'll leave it up to the viewers who are interested in that to find that. Yeah, there's just so much to talk about in this film that at some point we just have to move through it to not make this a four-hour podcast. All right, so let's look back at the times. The trailer really framed this as a sexy intrigue film. That's really just the main focus of the first act of this movie. Kubrick almost puts your attention in one way while also having these other little kind of themes kind of sprinkled in before we'd really dive into the second act. And like I said, this is almost a three-hour movie, so the first 40 minutes are are that first act, and the last two hours are so starkly different than the feel of that first 40 minutes. Yeah. I almost want to say that The way he advertised the movie and the way all the viewers went into it, the what they were thinking based on their um, the trailer and everything, was almost kind of a fuck you to audiences that didn't pay attention. Yeah, because he did that thing with like he did the 
initial scene with instant back nudity yeah. of the like a, a huge star at the time mm-hmm. and then that wasn't even what he was like he wasn't talking about sexuality that much it was so much deeper but it was kind of like yeah a, a fuck you a, a last send-off to say like if you had paid attention all to like if you paid attention to every detail in all these movies i've given you a lifetime of art to yeah. observe yeah 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 this film actually did really well when it came out it was a critical or sorry it was a commercial success and i think part of that lends to the premise shown in the trailer but i think it actually did kind of shock critics and moviegoers and it had a mixed reviews when it was initially reviewed mm-hmm. however over time i think that time has been very good to eyes wide shut definitely yeah when it from what i was reading the critics were overcritical because most of them were just putting out something quick after the box office like after entered into the mainstream or whatever they were just saying what first came to their mind Mm -hmm. and then as time passed it was like us watching it where i bet some of those critics who were a little too shallow in their review they probably were like oh wait yeah this was actually unreal yeah And this movie was kind of the perfect storm of events to sell the tickets that the way that it did. You have a married super couple playing opposite each other in a movie framed as an erotic film. And, And that would have gotten so many people to the seats already by a legendary director who had recently passed. And this would be his final release. Yeah. Why, why wouldn't you go see this at that point? I wish I could have. Yeah, so do that I. That would have been amazing. And so if we're, we're talking about the past, yeah. this is written, the book was written in the... 1926. 1920s. But it took place even earlier than that in Venetian times. Yeah, the 18... I want to say it was 18... Yes, it was the 18... 1890s, I believe, is yeah. kind of when the setting of the book was. Yes, it kind of... Early industrial age. Yeah, and so the themes are still relevant, and he focuses a lot on the human element between the times, and the times don't even really matter that much. We are talking about the specific time when this came out, but the times just kind of reminded me that like there is so much similar things happening when the book was written and when the book was had its setting and then the movie had its setting. Yes, and throughout history, you can draw comparisons to current events, and there's something huge that I want to bring up a little bit later Mm. once we get into the spoilers that we can draw a connection to in recent history. Okay, awesome. Yeah, because I feel like we're just itching to get at that. We're so itching to get we're, We're holding back so much. Yes. I want to kind of quickly say that I think this film challenges filmmakers to make movies that are more complicated. And I think since then, movies actually haven't kind of pushed the limit that Stanley Kubrick has. I think that they've pushed for more widespread appeal and trying to sell tickets. Whereas I think instead, I think this is where TVs really shined in bringing Stanley Kubrick's like level of detail. Mm-hmm. Like Mad Men is a great example and The Sopranos as well. 
and even like a Breaking Bad where there's so many layers and allegory and and just so much happening that if you really stop and pay attention every scene and every every piece on the scene is is set in such a way as to evoke feeling or maybe make you compare or contrast something to what's happening in those scenes so i think that this film actually had more of an impact on the golden age of tv than it Mm. did of cinema yeah i could see that i think also uh it, it did it definitely did impact some films and maybe not in as deep of a way or just in a different way but you could almost compare it to Inception where a lot of people were like super focused on all the details and Nolan was like he he got all of the small details a lot of them mattered not nearly as much as in Eyes Wide Shut but the the essence of it was there and could you imagine Inception, but by Stanley Kubrick? Oh my god! I don't know if he could do it. He he, pro- he probably could. There'd be a lot of nudity. Well, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's talk personal reviews. So I'm gonna start. I really enjoyed this film, and the more and more I think about it, the more and more I fall in love with it. I don't know if I like it as much as 2001 or Full Metal Jacket, but I think. Before, it wasn't even in my top five, even within like two hours or so of watching it. I think it moves up to number three. I think it edges out The Shining potentially. Wow. Yeah. Know what? As I look back at other Kubrick films that I've watched, I don't think I was able to appreciate them as much as until after I just watched this. Yes. So I I see that exact feeling. So, so yeah, so I wouldn't start with this film. And like I said, it just has edged in very recently into my top three Kubricks, but I haven't seen, I've actually only seen about half of his filmography at this point, but excitingly, I want to just bring up that Spartacus is coming to Netflix December 1st. So look out for that. If you're interested in diving into Stanley Kubrick's filmography, that's a really early film in his career. Mm -hmm, And I'm mm -hmm. really interested in seeing the contrast between the two films as well. It was really famous at the time it came out and it spawned its own TV series later in life. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I would love to watch that just to see like how much of his pure talent was there at the beginning of his career and how much of it had grown since then and over the over the times. Yeah, that's going to be a great contrast. I don't think we're going to be doing Spartacus or another Kubrick for a little while. We have kind of a, a little bit of a plan for the next couple months. But I would like to revisit Kubrick within the next year, most likely. Definitely. The other kind of point that I wanted to make about uh, Eyes Wide Shut is that it was constantly subverting my expectations. So I initially thought this film was going to be building to an erotic story of marriage and again i was kind of thinking pre 50 shades of gray here and maybe that was some inspiration so so then i thought it was going to be something like a straight played hall pass like kind of toning down the comedy Mm. but still kind of that hall pass kind of story arc and then i thought maybe this movie is going to be kind of more like a one night adventure where bill kind of learns something about himself and his relationship with alice and they reconcile by the end of the movie kind of thing and just constantly the film is kind of twisting where i think it's going on its head 
yeah, I initially had no idea what was going to be happening in this, and I was just constantly guessing at the theme, like the overarching theme that I could watch out for. And I was like, are they spies? Are they like going to hit someone? Are they, they're flirting with different people because they have a plan. Mm. And then that got switched. And then I was like, maybe it will just be a a swingers paradise kind of movie. Like is they're going to, they're going to meet people and then bring them together. And there's going to, I, I kind of expected an orgy straight from the start, but that was only after the spy thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I was definitely flip flopping because of the way he was portraying everything at the beginning. It took a while to figure out. I don't think I figured out until the end that what the movie was about. No, neither did I. The other thing I want to just quickly touch on is it to me, this film. So it feels so raw as a film and it there's this gritty realism to it even though the the way that the the lighting kind of makes this dream sequence mm. there's also this gritty realism versus kind of the movie magic that audiences may have come to expect and especially in the cgi era where everything is touched up to be perfect yeah yeah the darkness of certain scenes and the lighting and everything and the way the characters move even and yeah everything really gives it that perspective i guess yeah my review is basically that there's too much to review there's so much going on and that's what i loved about it because it isn't obvious that there's so much going on Mm -hmm. and there's several different themes and sub themes that you can play back and forth with and discuss and overall watching it it's almost like you are Bill Hartford and his wife going into the movie and then you come out something like someone else a little bit because he wasn't thinking that much in the beginning. And you kind of go into this and you're trying to think, but you're like, I really don't know. And then all of a sudden it ends and you're just thinking constantly about everything that happened. It's like you are waking up for from a dream. Right. So it really did play. This is a top notch movie. Yes. It's up there in my top 20. Wow. I don't know how far up I can't, I haven't thought that far into where it sits, but the more and more we talk about it and we had waited until tonight to fully discuss this. But as we are talking, it's just inching up closer and closer to the top films that I've seen. Kubrick just has a way about just shooting and every component to it that it gets inside of your head and it's tough to leave. Like the way that I often rate movies is by how much I remember them over time. And same with TV a little bit as well. If if I remember certain scenes or certain elements of the film, I can tell you how much I like the film. And at this point, this film is so vivid in my mind. And six months from now, I think it's going to be still very vivid in my mind. And that's the sign of a truly great film. When I look at other films, if I say when we're flipping through Netflix or Prime or whatever, I say, I know that I've watched that and I think I I enjoyed it, but I don't remember anything about it. What I always find if we rewatch those films is that by the end, I'm like, nah, that was okay, I guess. Mm. And then it's gone from my memory again. 
See, for me, I remember almost everything. Like, even a horrible movie, I could remember, like, a lot of the plot and everything. I've always been that way with books and everything. But I'm definitely going to be... It's going to stay in our minds because it's something to reference for other movies. So when we watch another movie, we're going to be like, how does that compare to Eyes Wide Shut in this sense? Because I think this set a bar, this set multiple bars, and you don't even know which levels those bars are at (laughs) because we still haven't figured it out yet. Yes, that's a great point. I think it's worth mentioning that both of us were a little off-put by the movie at first and we're like should we be doing this on the podcast like is this relevant to what we're trying to talk about and then it became so much bigger after and now we have so much to say so let's talk partner factor what did annabelle think of this she came into it just after the party got started. Okay. The first party got started. So she watched almost all of it. Mm-hmm. I should have just rewatched it, but I was like, I have to watch this. <laughs> it's a long movie. It is and a it long was movie. a Sunday night and we stayed up way too late watching it. Mm-hmm. But it was so good. And she was into it, but also she wasn't able to get as deeply into it. I was noticing certain things and pointing them out. And she's like, huh, like I would never have thought to watch or to look out for that she's gonna hate when she hears me say that but (laughs) she does get quite into movies and I think I don't say that I might uh generalize her a little bit too much there but yeah she liked it she found it very strange and that is a big aspect of it it is a strange movie because as you're watching it you're expecting one thing and then as soon as the first act is done you don't know what to expect yeah And that's where it kind of, um, I think that's what her feeling was, is I don't know what I'm watching right now. And honestly, I didn't really either that much. That's where I wrote down, can this film work without the first part? Because I hadn't finished it all. Yeah, it can't. But at the same time, you just don't know what's going on. Yeah, You you need to view this movie as a whole rather than the sum of its parts, basically. But the sum of its parts are also super deep. This is where kind of Jess, Jess's perception of it was that she wasn't a large fan of it, that the beginning dragged on way too long, and yeah. once things started getting moving, uh, she just wasn't interested. It hadn't hooked her yet. So she actually went to bed before the end of the film. I think she regrets that a little bit after all of the discussion you and I have had and all Mm -hmm. the research I've been doing and the discussions that we've had on the walks. Like every single walk for the last half a week, I've been discussing different parts of the film with her. Mm. If you didn't have the right mindset or the right timing or whatever to get into it, it's kind of hard to see all all of the value. And that's part of the genius of it is that you are kind of supposed to be Bill and Alice at the beginning when you're coming into this. Mm -hmm. And it kind of breaks down your own um, perceptions as mostly his are also broken down. Yeah. And I actually, there were points in time where I identified with Bill a little bit and his naivety for the world, which was really interesting actually. Yeah. I've seen that in my own life. Um, One of the central themes is the difference between wealthy and rich. Mm -hmm. And that's one of those layers of the two levels of power. Yeah. And I've seen certain people who are wealthy 
And up until that point, I had only seen rich people. Mm-hmm. And that kind of breakthrough is huge for people who haven't seen that clear delineation. Yeah. And that's what Bill experiences. Mm-hmm. One aspect of his this his experience in this is that breaking down of the thin but huge barrier between rich and wealthy. Right. Okay, we're going to quickly go sequels, prequels, and reboots. There's none. The last uh, Stanley Kubrick film, there was never any sequels kind of released for this film, and Stanley Kubrick never did any sequels for any of his films. They were just kind of one and done. So there were some sequels of his previous films, but we're not going to get into that here. So we can just kind of blow by this for the most part. Maybe in, let's say, the 2120s or something like that in maybe someone will be able to recreate it based off of his recreation the same way he recreated the novel like 80 years later 90 years yeah 80 years later mm-hmm. um but i don't i can't really compare this to anything there is no sequel but there's also nothing that stands on its shoulders by any means yeah i would agree with that this film is unique in every aspect of its filming and all of the parts that came together for this wouldn't come together again. All right, at this point in time, we're diving into spoilers. I'm super excited about oh, yeah. this. At this point, you should have an idea if you want to see this film or not. I highly recommend it to the people that we recommended it to earlier. Pause the podcast and come back and hang out after you watch it. Yeah, we'll get into exactly like our way of thinking about movies and what we've seen elsewhere on the internet. This is the part of loving movies that we like we love. Yeah. And we're going to just go back and forth and just be like, "Did you watch or do you remember that one scene? This is why that was so important." Mm-hmm. And then how it ties into the rest and then We'll just be stacking ideas on ideas because this movie's full of them. See you guys later. Where do you want to start? <laughs> oh, I don't know. There's there's so much to talk about. I mean, let's go through kind of the plot points here. Let, let's just hit a few of the bigger points. And then if there's any kind of scenes that you want to mention, uh, we could bring those up as we go. So, you know, Bill's destroyed and distraught by everything that happens that Alice tells him about the relationship and how her perspective on her relationship, their relationship and sex is. And so he goes out on this night adventure. And I think I think what caps all of it off as well, though, is by the one grieving woman that he goes out to do that service for to go kind of pronounce her father dead who was Mm -hmm. his old client basically and she basically tries to make love with him right then and there and and i think that almost proves alice's point that basically everybody is trying to smash him Mm -hmm. (laughs) and i i was grappling with the fact that i was thinking is he has he cheated does he cheat is that what's is this is important and then that scene happened and actually i was kind of like i was still i was kind of zoning out while he was there um pronouncing him dead they were talking it was nothing was really happening and then she just started trying to make out with him and say like i love you and 
like let's go away together or whatever. Right. And then I was like, I was like, yes, I knew he was. Yeah. Because you're not sure up till that point because of his reaction to Alice's uh, dream sequence that she she instills jealousy into him for the first time because yes. he specifically says. I am not jealous of you because I don't think women think the way men think. And, and, then, and then he meets someone like the next day who's the mirror image of his own wife, basically. Yeah. yeah. Her actions. Yeah, yeah. She was okay. like, let's run away right now yeah. kind of thing. Like She's just purely I, fully in love with him. Yeah. And that's kind of what he was looking for. Yeah. But that's what that's the fantasy that Alice yeah. had that broke Bill's mind that Bill didn't think could be possible yes and then he's witnessing it from a yeah. third party who doesn't know about the discussion that yeah. he's just had with his wife and that was only like an hour or two after too yeah yeah so after that we have the scene where he goes and sees nick nightingale playing nick mm. nightingale says you know i have to go i have to go play at this secretive kind of location i can't tell you anything about it. i just you know there are things that happen there that you you can't and shouldn't be a part of basically nick nightingale he's a piano player and he gets invited to random locations he is never told the address ahead of time there's a uh, he's blindfolded while he plays the piano and one night he said that his blindfold slipped a little bit and he just saw the most gorgeous naked women Mm -hmm. and the acts that they were performing Mm -hmm. that just completely hooked bill and he's like, that's what I'm looking for. Yeah. Like, I'm, this is like, I need something like that right now. Mm-hmm. And so he just goes fully into trying to get the location out of Nick. Yeah. And, and so he gets the location. There's the fun scene at the costume store, which both of us obviously loved. And at that point, you know, you think the film's going one way, like, like a hall pass, a Harold and Kumar kind of night mm. almost kind of yeah. thing. And then we get to the cult orgy scene. Yeah. And this is where, like, I was like, what the hell is going on? Yeah. Like, I was kind of envisioning that. I didn't, I was not imagining it to be culty. I thought it was just, like, awesome sex party. Mm-hmm. And that is exactly what Bill was thinking, too. Right. He didn't have the inclination that this was going to be, like, a, a weird culty sex party. He was just like, I'm here for the sex. Actually, this is something that I haven't said before, and I just want to kind of say this really quickly. Like, I said Bill is a naive character. I kind of get the feeling that he hasn't had much adversity in his life. That Definitely. everything tends to go right for Bill. Yeah, and you see that in the way he interacts with anyone below him. and Because he just flashes his money and his doctor's uh, badge or certificate that he keeps in his wallet. And... Those two things get him through anything. The fact that he's a doctor and the fact that he has money gets him throughout his life up until this point. He can go anywhere and do anything because he's a doctor with money. This is his downfall also. Because when he goes to the culty sex party at this Rothschild-esque mansion, right. which actually was a Rothschild mansion, yeah. um, he shows up in a taxi. Yes. Which with, is really key to... Yes the cult figuring out who he is and how he stands out out, out of the cult. Yeah, because nobody would ever show up to this cult meeting in a taxi. They're they're all 
had like private limousines and helicopters. Yeah, things like that. Whereas he showed up in a taxi and he another scene with the money, he he split a hundred dollar bill down the middle yes. and gave it to the taxi driver and said, If you stay for an hour or until I'm done, I'll give you the other half. Yeah. Another bargain for his money and his influence. Right. And then he goes inside and all of that is shattered. Yeah. And what's really great about this is is the woman in the orgy keeps trying to tell him that you're in danger, you need to get away. They know that you're not who you say you are. Like You shouldn't and, be here. And he's so naive to think that things are just going to go all right for him. I mean, a lot of the things in the mansion shock him that he sees, but he just kind of thinks that things are going to work out and he's going to mm-hmm. be okay. Like, that, he's untouchable, essentially. Yeah. One scene that we didn't mention that was uh, happened in the first party that is very relevant later on is that at this fancy party, yeah. he's flirting, his wife's flirting. He gets taken away from the party up to the upper uh, levels of this amazing location, which is his boss's house. Yeah. And Ziegler's. To, yeah, Ziegler's house. He has to attend to a drugged up model that Ziegler was just having sex with. This is the first scene where you don't have any reference to Christmas Mm -hmm. because it is outside of normal life or it's outside of the lower society that Bill is a part of. And that's what I was kind of referencing earlier. The consumerist society. Yeah. No. Yes. Consumer in a certain sense, because the elite they're consuming massively Right. But at, and at such a different scale, everything is a commodity for them, right. including people, yes. which is that's like what was happening at the whole orgy scene at the mansion as well. Mm-hmm. But um, so Bill has to he goes up to Ziegler's insanely ornate bathroom that's basically like the size of anyone we know's apartment. Yeah. And um, he has to take care of this drugged up girl that Ziegler was having sex with. Yeah. As soon as he walked into that mansion and that girl in the mask said, you are in great danger, yeah. I wrote down, is that the druggy girl? Oh, you got it so much earlier than I did. I could not figure out who it was. I was thinking of the prostitute that we kind of mentioned earlier kind of thing, but... I think we might have skipped the prostitute part. Yeah, I don't know if I want to get into that too much. There, There's just so much more other things to talk about than that. She was essential to certain areas, but... We'll, we'll see if we come back to that. Yeah, we'll see if we come back to it. So Ziegler is the wealthy man from the original party that what is Bill is aspiring to be, essentially. And there was some interesting uh, discussion online about how Ziegler is essentially the interpretation of Bill's worst self. And Kubrick often adds characters into his films that are representation of what the worst a main character can be. Oh, that's a really cool reference or like comparison because the way um, I interpreted it was actually this has a lot to do with one of the things that I was reading about after is that he is a representation of what bill would be at his worst and kind of what he aspires to be but it's only his morals that hold him back from 
joining the elite. Mm -hmm. He was never invited because I think he does maintain a certain set of morals, whereas those are all gone for that elite class. Yes. Yeah, I agree with that. The orgy scene, we have the woman telling him he needs to leave. He doesn't. He sticks around against her warnings. And so eventually he's caught and he's basically zeroed out. And they say, you know, like, you're going to be punished for this discretion. They make him unveil his mask because up to this point, everybody's costumed up wearing the masks. And everyone sees who he is in, in this at this point. And then... The woman who is trying to get him to leave comes to his rescue and says, instead of basically taking him, let me take his punishment instead. Yeah. And the way that everyone's super culty, obviously, in this yeah. cult, but they're all elite. And um, so her statement is, I'm ready to redeem him. Yes. And the central um, cult leader, who's the only guy wearing a red costume, um, he says, do you know what that means? Like, that's not something you can take lightly. Yeah. And Bill kind of has this idea that he, he knows what that means. Uh-huh. And as soon as I saw her up in the, that section, I was like, is she going to jump? Is that her punishment? Right. It's, it does, it does mean that she has to die if he's going to live yeah. and she did it. Why did she do it? I want to get into that a little bit later. I want yeah. to come back to this thought a yeah. bit. So, yeah. So, they let him go, basically. But post-party, he needs to know what's happening, basically. He needs to look behind the curtain of the events that he sees. And so, he keeps pushing and he keeps researching. And the cult begins to push back. They keep saying... and they So, they offered him one chance when they let him go originally. Yeah. They said, do not pursue this do not look us uh, do not search us out this night never happened for you and then he he doesn't listen he keeps pushing an original bill bill pre-revelations of his wife would have accepted it there and gone back to his normal life i think potentially yeah if if he didn't have that experience with his wife yeah and so he keeps pushing and then we see him being followed which is really kind of stressful the bald man following really unnerved me a little bit yeah i was like oh there's a trench coat guy this this isn't good yeah Tren- trench coat bald guy what's happening here but He's it was and it was obvious that he was falling to him like yeah. the scene where they kind of like have that eye to eye and yeah. he walks across the street and they're staring at each other yeah and he picks up the newspaper so bill hartford stops at a uh, newspaper stand to check if this baldy long coat guy is actually following him he just verifies he picks up a newspaper pays for it and then they just lock eyes and the trench coat guy doesn't back down he isn't he isn't hiding anything he's like you know what this is yeah that was so interesting i loved that the newspaper had so many interesting things written on it (laughs) <laughs> that's a, that's for another view. I'm going to have to pay attention to that then. So the, the front of the newspaper said, lucky to be alive. Mm-hmm. And then it went into its own story about someone else who is lucky to be alive. Interesting. And then inside, um, it referenced a party. Huh. When he sits down in the coffee shop, it references a party. And right. I, I didn't pause it at that moment to check what that was, but 
every little detail was there. The newspaper meant something. Well, and the newspaper is how we found out that the prostitute had died, yeah. essentially. She was a Miss New York. Yes. Previous Miss New York. Mm-hmm. So she somehow ended up in this cult. And and that's where I realized, oh my God, this is the girl from beginning. This mm-hmm. is, how did I not realize this yet? Yeah, I had my suspicions and that verified it. I was like, as soon as I saw her, I was like, and she was trying to get him to leave. I was like, that's her. So, yeah, so so he goes and he sees her dead body in the morgue to confirm for himself that she's mm-hmm. died, basically. And at this point in time, this is when Ziegler, our character from before, calls him to his house to personally have that discussion with him. Mm-hmm. And he basically, he explains to Hartford how they followed him, what they did. He says that the dude that the group didn't kill the prostitute, that she OD'd, and that she was just going to OD anyway, and he had seen her before. And so that's really interesting because I think you could argue one way or the other, and Bill kind of says, like, was that actually what happened? And Ziegler says, do you care, basically? And, And that's the thing is you honestly could argue either way. Like, there isn't a clear answer, and that's... That's something that Kubrick made intentional there mm. is that honestly, she could have just been acting every everything. Like if you think back to the party and the events that transpired, like obviously she was aware that he was the black sheep in that room basically. Mm. And she know to pinpoint him out, but did she say something that basically that made the, cult say we can't let her live maybe she did just od see i did interpreted that very differently and Mm -hmm. so i think ziegler says um like he alludes to the fact that it was just a big game it was all fake Mm -hmm. and that made me think that maybe this whole thing was bill's introduction into the society and they were just like completely fucking with him or they were oh. they were literally playing a game on someone who was rich but not wealthy just for fun wow. and i was and that's where i was going i was like is this all just fake i wrote fake with like a few question marks and then i was like wait not fake and you honestly like you you have a valid point there because nick nightingale's the one who introduces him and gets him into yeah. this party and nick nightingale was the musician playing at his christmas uh, party. at the christmas party and ziegler might not have known the connection there but there's a there's a realistic potential that he did see that connection between he, the I, two of them he said i saw you with nick nightingale and i th- i'm pretty sure he said that and um that's like that's how they knew that that's how he got into the party right but nick and and ziegler the only hole in this in this is that you have to rely on the fact that Bill's actually going to follow up and go and see Nick then later. But his ego, Bill Hartford, every time he saw, yeah. he would have went over and said, oh, my buddy, old buddy who's not a doctor. Yes, that is a great point as well. Yeah, so he would have said that every time, and that's where if... if it this, made him feel important, yeah. the fact that he succeeded in something so difficult, and to just continuously bring that up to someone who he views as lesser basically yeah exactly and he's 
able to joke around with him and act a little bit humble, like, like, yeah, you could have been a doctor, man. And like, kind of have a conversation with him without ever stepping from his perceived view as being above him. Right. I, I still think it's potentially could have all been just a game. I don't think so. It was just a happenstance. No, that's like you, everyone is completely entitled there to their opinion in this Mm. film because it's, it's such an ambiguous story and plot that really anything can be correct. Like, do you think that Nightingale was killed uh, or did he make it back home? Was he even roughed up? Because did it matter? Did it matter? (laughs) Yeah. See, there's so much to, there's so many questions and, and some of them might not matter. Yeah. One thing about that scene, there's, there's so many things about that scene up in Ziegler's office at the end Mm -hmm. where, um, one thing that I noticed that I didn't see referenced anywhere was the fact that um, he offers Bill a whiskey and he's like, oh, that's a good whiskey. And then um, he's like, yeah, it's 25 year old. I could give you a case. And I was I was thinking like I'm, I bet that that um, Miss New York was about 25 years old. So like I there's so many things that you could attach things to either that or they were every little small detail was relevant mm-hmm. because these um elite people are just trading people art influence and power like a commodity yes it, nothing means anything to them they're just throwing it around so the 25 year old case was kind of like like i could give you a 25 year old girl i could give you a 25 year old case <laughs> i could I, whatever right like it was all relevant to me. Yeah. Yeah. So I kind of want to talk about Bill's naivety a little bit here. So clearly, you know, he doesn't understand women. He doesn't understand how the world really works at that high power level, at the affluent level above his reach at this point. He didn't and, know it existed. Yeah. And both of these concepts are just so foreign to him that by the end of the film, it just both of these in such quick succession breaks him down. And so at the end, we see him telling Alice about everything and he, he lets Alice decide for them how they're going to respond, which I think is really important because up until that point, Alice was just the trophy wife Mm -hmm. and he would have been the decision maker and his opinions were more important than hers because he was a doctor. Yeah. And what's really interesting is at this point in time, she basically just chalks the whole thing up to just a dream. And her suggestions in the end are essentially, let's just go back to our marriage before these revelations of the past few days, because clearly you're not mature enough to handle it. And let's essentially live in the ignorance that we used to live in. And we don't necessarily have to be happy, but as long as we can squint through life without having to consider the demons under our bed, then we'll, we can live a better life than if you are to push the mm. the problems and the issues that you saw, essentially. Yeah. And that's where the eyes wide shut comes into play. Yeah. She specifically says, we're awake now. Yeah. And that, throughout the whole movie, I was like, what it, what does w- eyes wide shut mean? Mm-hmm. I, I thought it was just Nick Nightingale, the fact that he was blindfolded and mm-hmm. then he saw a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that's very apt it's just not for him it's for bill and um, there's a there's a lot of kind of analogies to dreaming and like the eyes wide shot or like 
references to eyes and awakening. taking a mask off yes being take- naked and yeah, yeah, revealed. Even even early in the movie, when we see Bill helping Ziegler and the model, he actually says to the model, "Open your eyes, like awake yeah, from this yeah. uh, overdose." Basically, yeah. Kind wow, of thing. I didn't. I missed that part. Yeah, yeah. I don't really agree with you that that's what Alice was saying on your mm-hmm. previous point. I don't think she was saying let's go back. I think she was saying like, kind of let's go forward with. They're going to ignore, like, the dream aspect and what happened, Mm -hmm. but they're awake as people now, and they can see each other. Because one of the things that is um, paralleled here, I'm not sure on the exact numbers, but if you look at the number of women that he wants to sleep with Mm -hmm. outside of the, well, even including the cult thing, Mm -hmm. it's relevant to the number of women that are circling the red cult leader at the beginning yes i believe it was seven it was seven i did count i I wasn't sure if it would maybe be important later yeah 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 you start (laughs) you start kind of keeping track of shit just in case it comes up but um there's all these women that he kind of wants to sleep with and he never gets to and like that's part of the sexual experience and it's it was just a crazy correlation between the amount of women because basically he viewed himself as the red cult leader mm-hmm. and all these women were bowing to him mm-hmm. and then the cult leader made them all turn away and go with someone else so did he he turned away his wife he walked away from the prostitute he couldn't get the model in the mask so many things it's all connected to that right and it's all just like his perspective and the women he's involved with yeah and i think this is just where you and i are going to see this film a little different because i still see bill essentially accepting the answers that he gives he's given from ziegler and just accepting to live under a dark reality but a little bit in that ignorance so he could have his eyes wide open and see the world for what it really is Mm -hmm. And, and take a stand against those people and bring to the attention what's happening there. But instead, he chooses to just basically accept it and try to put it past him and not think about it and move on with his life. Yeah, I think this was a extremely life-changing moment for both, like, for the couple. Yeah. And, yeah, the way... Um, forward i don't think he's gonna he's definitely not gonna pursue the course that he wanted to be on and so this is where i kind of want to reference uh there's a really great article on vulture.com called what i learned after watching eyes wide shut a hundred times and so there's some really great arguments here that the film is essentially distracting us with sex but the real point of it is the abuse of power as well as our complacency in thinking about it essentially because bill tries to be blissfully unaware of what's happening while also just flat out accepting ziegler's answers like he doesn't he doesn't challenge him further basically in in their kind of ultimate meeting with each other and he just chooses to move on with his life where it's really interesting that this mirrors today is with the me too movement so 
basically a lot of people after all of this happened and me myself a little bit said like i can't imagine so many of these men doing these terrible things Mm -hmm. because i personally couldn't imagine doing them myself like bill like bill couldn't imagine what was possible in kind of the dark corners beyond his vision kind of thing Mm -hmm. and beyond his status but that stuff really does happen and there are dark places that we'll never see thankfully a little bit Mm -hmm. but basically we chose to live in ignorance a little bit for a very long time And even when all of the facts are presented to us, we still almost don't want to believe what's right in front of our eyes. Yeah, it's that it's that level of hidden wealth that Mm -hmm. we don't understand. Mm -hmm. And so we are Bill in that situation where we don't see all that crazy stuff. We can kind of believe it, but we've seen it in movies and things to a certain degree, but to see it so vividly and realistic. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. I actually, on the way to work today, I was listening to the radio and they were talking about how a, I believe it was a basketball player was recently penalized for something during the game. And he was charged 15 grand for what he did. Mm. And then they said, well, honestly, that's really just a drop in the bucket for him because he makes 20 million a year. And I did the math on that in my head as I was driving to work. And that $15,000, think about how much 15 grand is to me and you. Mm -hmm. That's less than $100 equivalently to him. Yeah. (laughs) And that's what Bill ripped in half to give to the taxi driver. Yeah. And was like, it's worth it for you to stay for the second half. Mm -hmm. And like, we're within that world. Yeah. Not the basketball players. It's insane. That's a really great analogy to this film. Like... Here's half of a hundred dollars. I promise you it's worth it. You just have to get through the second act. Basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that's a really great kind of comparison. Yeah. At the end, you see that the $50 was worth the wait to the cab driver, but that $50 means nothing yeah. in the grand scheme, like the amount of wealth it was going on. And that's where this is a huge discussion on classism. And that's been, we've discussed that in parts without naming it, really, I feel. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, I view this film more as a social commentary than I do even about the sociological aspect between Bill and Alice and men and women Mm. in society. That's where I land on this one. I think it's it all plays a huge part because the way men and women think are very different. Mm-hmm. And that's similar to the way um, how a rich person and a wealthy person thinks is very different. Mm-hmm. And um, the differences between all of those matter at different levels. And that's what like it is to be human. There's so many levels to so many things. And Kubrick's discussing all of it in one long movie. Yeah. But and- it's short for that much content and where i originally fell the day after watching this with jess i said overall i like this film but i think that it was trying to hit too many themes and it didn't effectively work by hitting all of the themes but now after getting through a half a week and doing all the research and reading online i've actually even changed my tune on that mm. i think that 
every component of this film and all of the different themes were necessary in showcasing the other themes. I, maybe there's little things you can cut here or there in this film, but I think that everything is just so important. And like you said, mm. there's just so many little details that this film just has such a rewatchability to yeah. it that I, I'm already excited to get back to it. Yeah. Do you want to just mention a few like small scenes here yeah. and there? And we'll just wrap it up. Basically. I think yeah. we've, we talked about the big important yeah. parts that yeah. we couldn't talk about before. One that I'd like to talk about is at the very beginning, mm-hmm. the guy, the old suave, um, the Hungarian, Hungarian <laughs> man. Um, he was a part of the cult. Yeah, he the way been. yeah, and the way he was talking to Alice, yeah, was he actually references this book? It's um, Ovid, the Art of Seduction, or something like that. Mm-hmm. So this this was a Roman time Roman era book mm-hmm. that basically discussed how to cheat on your wife and get away with it mm-hmm. in Roman times. And so this guy is referencing that, and one of the moves that was referenced in the book was to drink from the girl's glass. Really? That's where that comes into play. Yes. Yeah. And I were like, Oh, that's so gross. Like why would anybody find that sexy? Yeah. And it's, because it's, he's basically saying, I want to exchange bodily fluids with you. Huh? Wow. And so, and it's directly from the book that he's referencing to her. If you go into that small character again, this Hungarian, yeah. there's uh, something referenced within um, a certain cult that it's based off his name it's um his name is like kind of sounds like satan it's there's something darker there but he basically is part of like this thing that can brainwash people and you can see some of that working on alice where she's like mm, like she's almost going along with it right. so that was like a that was a cool very early scene that set a lot of the mood and yeah, I, I saw him drink this gla- her glass, and I was like, Ugh. Yeah, that's why I did the yeah, same thing, so yeah. did Jess. Yeah, and, it, and there was so much symbolism in just that one interaction. I mean, obviously, the clothing scene was amazing. The, the banter back and forth between Bill and the store owner. Yes, and then, the and costume, then, yeah. Yeah, and then when they go back to the back and his daughter just pops out with the two yeah. Asian guys and they're having a weird, like, three-way going yeah. on. And, and uh, Millich is acting like, what are you doing? You Like, he calls her, like, a whore or something, a harlot. Yeah. And then uh, when he, Bill comes back to give him back his uh, the costume that he rented from Millich, yeah. he sees the two Asian men leaving and the daughter come out. And yeah. this is Millich's daughter who um he was like calling a harlot before but now he's like do you want to sleep with my daughter <laughs> yeah i could set that up for you yeah and so it's just like another another level of like this thing that's going on in society yeah on that note the book is based it was written in the decadence movement of france like the the yes. period it was called the decadence movement mm-hmm. which was um all about excess and artificiality so that's what the writers of that time of Trom Novelle, when it was released, that's what they were speaking about because it was happening in their time. Right. And then that's why um, Kubrick decided to do this in our time. And it hasn't stopped. Yeah, I mean, 50, 100 years from now, 
it it sounds awful and this is a little nihilistic but i think this film is always going to have a place in society as long as humans are biologically the way that they are Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it's it's really hard to detract them that and i don't even want to deflect the blame for it necessarily either maybe if everybody watches this movie then we'll all be like oh i see and then we'll just like grow from there but probably not (laughs) yeah just based on like another area of interest for mine um i was into reading um dostoyevsky and some of the he had a specific era the existentialists the whole movie is so similar to dostoyevsky's writing style about following this one person and like it's always like this one person walking alone and experiencing different things at the different stops is it was just cool for me um, just on a personal note, if yeah. anyone's interested in existentialism, Dostoevsky, like this is very similar. The whole journey and adventure that Bill has over that one night is an exploration of his ideals, essentially. Yeah, and it strips down what he thought was reality. He just it strips away his reality, and then he has to basically be reborn the way he was blubbering like a child at the end. Yeah, like he really, he fully breaks down. Yeah. And it's just one, like, night. Maybe it was two nights. It was two nights because the second night was when he was trying to figure out what happened. Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure exactly how long the time span was there, but when he met with Ziegler, he said the things that you saw last night were all a dream, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that I thought was funny was when he was being um, revealed in the circle of the cult, I was thinking, is his buddy still playing the piano? <laughs> yeah, I thought that too. <laughs> I was looking for him. <laughs> like that was that was hilarious to me because I was like, he's caught. His buddy's being forced to play his like funeral music basically. <laughs> yeah. And he invited him here, but he can't stop playing. He's blindfolded anyways. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I don't know if he was actually playing, but it was like the the score was happening of that that dramatic um like yeah. ding, ding, ding. like yeah it was like a and that it kept going on for so long that um small like note span whatever and it was just called. like those single note kind of thing yeah single like, piano notes in a certain key mm-hmm. that were just so like it said everything mm-hmm. for what was going on also the actual sex scenes they're like that's not how you have sex i feel like <laughs> maybe i'm wrong <laughs> No, but um, the like it was like animalistic in a strange way. Yes. When if you're watching the the way they were the cult um members were. Yeah, and I'm sure even the movements were orchestrated by Kubrick. Yeah. And like, yeah, I think you're right they as well. There was some very unnatural. Weird, there, it was very unnatural. Yeah. And yeah, there's um people having sex all over this crazy awesome mansion mm-hmm. and with the masks on and um yeah just like the body movements were just slightly off like they weren't natural the art in Bill's house the idea for why they had so much art there was basically that uh his wife lost her job as a gallery curator so she kept a oh, bunch of okay. pieces all of the art in different scenes 
has like there's some things going on there. But right. in in Bill's house, um, all of the paintings in their like hallway mm-hmm. were actually painted by Kubrick's wife, Christine. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So he he put in some of her pieces, which was pretty cool. Quickly to talk about the dreams again one last time. Like Alice at one point dreams about cheating on Bill with multiple men. And and this, again, pushes him back out onto the streets kind of thing. Mm. And so this lends itself to later on almost making the viewer question whether the dramatic things that Bill's observed are are a dream or not. And, and people keep telling him that mm-hmm. it's all a dream. Yeah. When he comes back to his apartment after the whole cult experience, mm-hmm. he wakes up his wife who is like laughing weirdly in the right. dream. Right. Yeah. And, um, she's having, she has a dream of a deserted city where she has no clothes and, um, there's like all these like crazy things happening. She's having sex with way too many people. Mm-hmm. And I was like, did the cult make her dream this? <laughs> it was just crazy. Like, like, Right. It it like it fit in so well with like what is going on? Like how much power do these guys really have? Or like what is like how is this happening? Yeah. How did her dreams really connect that well with what just happened to her husband? And her cruelty towards Bill is super interesting. The way she just brutally tells him all of these things i was kind of shocked by it and um it was but it makes sense yeah it was very blunt but up until that point it's such a stark contrast to their relationship at that up until this point in time and even like in between you see her um helping her daughter with math homework Mm -hmm. and she's like smiling and putting she has this mask on Uh uh-huh you know what i'm actually this is kind of going off of my notes a little bit but Coming back to the co- the comparison to Mad Men, I think you could very much compare Betty, the uh, Don Draper's wife, mm-hmm. to Alice in this film, and and the perception of what a trophy wife is, mm-hmm. and and them kind of both breaking the mold from that or not breaking the mold from that a little yeah. bit. It's interesting because at at some point both of them have their blunt conversations with the main character and and it fundamentally changes them and and eventually i think they both kind of go back to the way things were a little bit they're both kind of characters like again and and this is differing opinion from me and you but i see alice as basically accepting things at face value and saying to Bill, this is all a dream. Let's go back to our marriage, basically. Um, I don't think they can go back to their marriage, and I think they're going to go forward to something actually healthy for the first time in their lives. Mm-hmm. Which is entirely yeah, possible. Yeah. yeah, We honestly could be talking about this for another hour or two, and I think at this point in time, we might just have to leave the viewers with some of these insights and... Mm. And challenge them to go and watch the film and derive their own ideas and opinions about this. Yeah, definitely. I'm super excited to hear from. I like. I really hope some of the viewers can say like, I watched this movie and I appreciated it 
because they maybe experience our podcast. That'd be super cool. That would like, that's, be great. That's what we're looking, not necessarily looking for. We're, would, we enjoy doing this and yeah. that, that would be just a plus. Yeah. I would love to have some discussion with some viewers on, on this one, but just in general, like leave those comments and, and we'd love to have that open discussion. Yeah. It's tell us some things that we missed or things to watch out for or um, ask questions about what we think about whatever. There's so much to discuss here and discussing it is the fun part for us, really. I I have just as much, if not more fun discussing these than I do watching them. Yeah. All right. Well, shall we wrap her up? We're well over two hours at this point, so I've got a lot of cutting yeah, to shit. do. This one needed it. It was a three-hour movie. <laughs> it did need this. It, and it's just so dense. So, yeah. yeah. Please, if if this film in any way has spoken to you, I mean, at this point, if you're listening, you probably have watched it, but leave if you have watched it, leave a comment below. We really want to have some discussion about this film. Yeah, or if we helped you maybe go watch it and you, you hated it, you loved it, you saw some things that we didn't, or whatever. Or maybe we're just a couple of crazy Charlie Days who are just trying to find meaning in nothing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't think so. <laughs> Neither do I. I'm too far down the rabbit hole. Yeah, yeah. But Charlie Day doesn't think he's Charlie Day in that situation <laughs> <Yeah>. either. <laughs> he's right. Uh, okay. Anyways, thanks yeah. for watching Vintage Cinema Rewind. We'll see you next time.